Good morning. Um, It's certainly an honor to have been asked to share God's word with you this morning. Um, I recognize my nervousness for being up here, but uh, my intent is to certainly push the attention away from me and push it towards Christ. So let's let's do that today. Uh, Let's just pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing us all here. Lord, we just... I'm not out, up here for because of some because I'm special. I'm up here, or because of what Christ has done in my life. I thank you for that He paid uh, the penalty for sin, that I'm able to be forgiven and have a hope of eternity. Lord, we pray that in this moment, that um, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you'd open the hearts and minds of those here today. In Jesus' name, Amen. The text that we're going to be looking at today should bring us to a conclusion that after salvation, God really does desire to partner with people in an effort to reach others. You see, a person who has been born again uh, should have a desire to reach the lost. So it goes something like this. Upon hearing the gospel and by God's grace, I repent and put my trust in Christ alone. Um. The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates my heart, making me alive in Christ. And salvation in Jesus Christ brings me, a sinner, into the kingdom of God. So as a result of having been forgiven and and brought into a right relationship with God, God then sends me back into the world to share the good things that God has done in my life. You see, a true response to the gospel should bring a gratefulness And that gratefulness should make me a willing participant to share with others. Do you remember the demon-possessed man in the country of the Gadarians that lived in the tombs and he ran naked? And when Jesus came, it says that Jesus cast the demon out of that man and he sat in his right mind and he was clothed. When Jesus was leaving, he ran after him and he said, Lord, take me with you. But Mark records for us that Jesus said, It says that Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy has had mercy on you. And Luke records it this way. He says, Jesus said, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So we're also, we also have the Great Commission towards those who believe in Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19, and Mark 16, 15. Matthew says, Go you therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, Mark says, Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel to every creature. And two of the verses that I most often use for encouragement when I go out to speak to people is Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And 1 Corinthians 1.21, he says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those 
who believe. The, new, uh, the King James Version says, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching for the saving of souls. And I re- rely heavily upon those verses as encouragement to go out and share my faith with people. But just think of those who are not in Christ and hold to an unbiblical worldview. What do they have? They don't have anything. They don't have a hope beyond this world. They don't have anything to cling to except themselves and and their ideas. And it should grieve us. And the need, they need the gospel. They need somebody willing to go and share the gospel with them. So I think our text today reminds us of a couple things. It reminds us of Christ's urgency in his ministry to teach and to preach. I think it reminds us that people are desperate to hear the gospel. And it reminds us of our call to action through prayer and evangelism. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 7. It's in the New Testament all the way on the right-hand side. Um, But Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. This is what it says. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Verse 35 says that Jesus was going throughout through all the cities and villages. If you notice that the ministry of of Christ was a constant travel, he was always on the move, always going places and, and visiting people. It's true that we probably we don't really have much on the life of Jesus from the age 12 to 30, except that he stayed in the temple uh, for a couple days and his parents came back to get him and that the child grew and increased in knowledge. But it says that at the age of 30, that is when Jesus began his earthly ministry. In the pulpit commentary, it says this, that 30 was the age at which the Levites entered upon their work. The age, too, at which it was lawful for scribes, Uh, to teach, and generally speaking, that 30 among the Jews was looked upon as the time of life when manhood had reached its full development. So from that time, he began his ministry, and he was always progressing to the cross, and he never stopped. He never looked back. He had a mission. Uh, Luke confirms Jesus' desire to travel. Luke 4.43 says, Jesus speaking, I must preach the kingdom of God, to the other cities also, for this purpose I was sent. So if we go back through earlier chapters in Matthew, we can see some of the cities and villages that he went through. Matthew 4.13 says, Leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, Jesus came to Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Nephitali. Uh, 4.23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom. In Mark 1.39, it says that he went throughout all Galilee synagogues, 
Both Matthew and Mark said he had a great following. It says that a great multitude or a crowd followed him. And they were coming from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. You see, Jesus was on a mission. Uh, He was sent from the Father to us. And isn't that amazing that God came in the flesh and was purposely traveling and reaching out to those around him? This is a relational God. This isn't a God who created everything and just tossed it out there and said, good luck. He's involved and he has an interest in his creation. It says that our God came in the flesh to seek and save that which was lost. When he came to the cities and villages, what did he do? Verse 35, it says that he was teaching in their synagogues. Well, he's teaching in their synagogues. How is that? Well, if you remember that Jesus is a rabbi. He is a teacher. And so he, was, he had the authority to actually go to the synagogues and be able to stand up and share. And what were some of the things that he was teaching? Last Sunday, Paul, or Paul, Brother Phil, uh, expounded on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. But we can go through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and, 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 and grab a few things that Jesus was going around and sharing with the people in order, in order to teach them. He was teaching things like the Beatitudes, our relationship be, uh, with our sin and towards God. Uh, he expounded on the fact that, we, that you are the salt of the earth. He didn't change the law of God. He expounded on it by explaining that hatred in, in your, uh, is murder in your heart, hatred towards people. He expounded on the law of adultery, saying looking with lust is committing adultery in your heart. He, he's trying to explain to them that God can see our thought life and he knows what's in our heart. It's not just our physical actions that God is going to judge us by. In Matthew chapter 6, He warns us not to play the hypocrite, not to be a a pretender, one who professes God and does something else. Matthew chapter 7, some of the verses that we read last Sunday, uh, these are the things that Jesus taught. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matthew 7:23 says therefore any everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who has built his house on the rocks. So these were some of the things that Jesus went around teaching. In that very last verse in Matthew chapter uh, 7 it says when Jesus had finished these words the crowds were amazed. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. And we see in verse 35 that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went around saying things like this. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He also said in John recording, he says, he who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So why does the wrath of God abide on them? And why do they need to repent? Well, that's the whole purpose as to why Jesus came, our greatest need. When we look into the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the moral standard of God, and we see how God uh, 
what God has commanded us to do, how we can love him and obey him. And we look at those things as a man, as a measure or a standard that we need to live by. And what happens, though, is if we just take a few of them, if we just look at how many times have you told a lie in your lifetime or how many things have you stolen, irregardless of the value. You see, if you've ever told one liar, stolen one thing, God sees you as a liar and a thief. If you've ever used God's name as a curse word to express disgust, that's called blasphemy. The Bible says God will not hold them guiltless who uses his name in vain. It's very serious. We see it on television and we see it in movies all the time. It's a common expression now. It's even a website because it holds no meaning to the world. And God says he's going to exercise judgment upon those who use his name in vain. How about looking with lust? We just expounded on that, that Jesus didn't change the law. He said, if you even look with lust, that you've committed adultery in your heart. Those were four of the Ten Commandments that we just shared. There's still six more to go. If you violated any one of them, then you've sinned against God. Think about this just for a second. From the day you were born, and if, if God was so willing to allow you to live till you're 70 years old, and you committed one sin a day, just one, by the time you're 70 years old, you'll have sinned over 100,000 times. Now just think, that's just, that's just one sin a day. And how many times, if we violate even one of the Ten Commandments, the Bible says it's just as if we've broken all of them and we are guilty before God. We have a sin problem. We really do. Our, you know that it's wrong to lie. You know that it's wrong to steal. And when we do those things, we, we violate a moral law that God has, has written upon our hearts. And that is why he holds us personally responsible for those things. And he's going to bring us into judgment over those things. And the Bible says that God's judgment for those who have sinned against him is hell for all eternity. Jesus said it's a place where there is weeping and wailing, gnashing of the teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. He wasn't glorying in that. He was warning people not to go there. If you're in your right mind, why would you want to end up in a place of conscious torment? And see, it's not that your sin is so spectacular that God must torment people for all eternity. It is because of who he is and his glorious, his righteousness, his holiness, that he must demonstrate and he must pour out justice upon those who have sinned against him and it's not just murderers and rapists that god will stop at those people will get what they deserve on the day of judgment but he's going to also go after those who've lied and stolen and looked with lust so we have a very deep problem and jesus comes and he's sharing the gospel with those around him. And he expounds on the fact that, that, you see, yes, we're lost in our sin, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus came to live the life that you and I could not. He never sinned once in thought, word, or deed, so he was the righteous, righteous sinless Lamb of God. And he was able to go to the cross and pay for the penalty of sin that you and I deserve. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves the wrath and the curse of God. But cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us, and he died in our place, paying the penalty for sin. Picture it this way. You're standing a mile back and looking at a a dam that's holding back water. And it's 10,000 miles wide and it's 10,000 miles high and you're standing there. 
And in a moment, that, that dam is taken away, and all that water is going to come down, and it's going to crush you right where you stand. And just before the water gets there, the ground splits open, and it takes every single drop of water. Not one drop even comes close to touching your foot. Every bit. That anger, that wrath of God that has been barreling down upon you. Jesus steps in and he absorbs the anger and the wrath of God and he's crushed under the weight of his Father in our place. How does that apply to you? Acts chapter 17, Paul says, God has commanded all men everywhere now to repent. To turn from your sin and put your trust alone in what Jesus Christ has done for you. For there's coming a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that one man. Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful to hear that God, Jesus was going around proclaiming the gospel? The time has come. It's fulfilled. I'm here. I'm here to redeem a fallen people and draw men unto myself if you'll repent and put your trust in me. What else was Jesus doing in verse 35? It says he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There are some doctors that are very brilliant, yet as smart as they are, they, have, they are limited in their human ability to cure many things. Uh, here we see the Son of God unhindered with no limitation to his power to heal. And Jesus was demonstrating that he was God in the flesh. And you could trust every word that came out of his mouth. When Moses performed the miracles before, before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh laughed it off by calling his magicians to do the same. But if you remember, there came a time when the magicians could no longer do the things that God could do, and the mocking and the laughing stopped. It's one thing to be deceived and to have our, ourselves taken away with, with things that aren't true, but Jesus here was making it abundantly clear who he was. Matthew 8, chapter 8, it says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word. He healed all who were ill, and this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities, and he carried away our diseases. So all the above, teaching and proclaiming and healing, Jesus is our example of ministering to people, talking to people about the things of God and caring for people, and prayerfully addressing uh, needs as well as physical and emotional needs. The need was great. Let's listen to the heart of our Savior. In verse 36, he says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The verse says that Jesus saw them and that he felt for them. The word compassion here can be translated, he was moved with compassion, this deep inward felt compassion. He had pity on them. God in the flesh was moved with compassion for his creation. He was compassionate and he did, Jesus did love more than any man. But you need to understand that he never made sin. And our need to be reconciled back to God a small thing. He had compassion on them because of their greatest need. Let's draw back just for a second and take a snapshot of chapter 9. And I think you're going to see why Jesus had compassion on them. Chapter 9 starts out with the, the paralytic. Uh, he had friend, the They came to the house and it was full. They couldn't get to Jesus. So they went up on the rooftop. They dug a hole and they lowered their friend down to Jesus. And before Jesus even heals him, he, he looks at him and he says, Your sins 
are forgiven. And the scribe thought within himself, how is this man able to forgive sins? Who can forgive sins alone but God? And Jesus said, so you know that the Son of Man has the power to do both. I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And he healed the man. Only God could do that. And the crowd marveled and glorified God. But what does it say? It says that it bothered the scribe. Later we see that Matthew is called to follow Jesus, and he does. Only God can change a heart. And Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he says things like, I am come to call the... Uh, I have come not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. And there was a certain ruler who came to him and said, Come with me. My daughter has died. I need you to come and, and heal her. And as he was going to her house, remember the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years that had spent all of her money on doctors and couldn't find a cure. She touches the hem of his garment and is healed. Only God had the power to do that. And Jesus raises that girl from the dead after he puts those who were laughing at him out of the room. Only God has the power to raise people from the dead. And the two blind men were crying out to Jesus, and he heals both of them. Only God has the power to do that. There was a man possessed with a devil, and the devil is cast out, and only God has the authority and the power to do that. And the multitudes marveled. What does it say? It says that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a devil. You see that? Five miracles that only God can do, and they accused him of being a devil. Look at the rest of the verse. It says they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Well, if you have the rulers who knew the scriptures, but when Jesus shows up and performing miracles that no one else can do, and the spiritual leaders and the learned and the educated men reject him and call him a devil, if those who are studied and could not admit that Jesus was sent from God, then the verse is amplified. It's amplified by Christ when he says, like sheep without a shepherd. No one is going to lead them. No one is going to protect them from false teaching. No one is going to give them food or shelter from the word of God. The word distressed means troubled or wearied. And the word dispirited, it's a prostrated you're prostrated by fatigue. Or you fall into the ground. Uh, just, you know, imagine not eating for a couple of days. And you just collapse. So tr- that, that's how troubled and, and dispirited they are inside themselves. And I just wanted to t- just touch really quick that miracles is not really, it's, that is not what converts a soul. Uh, it's a sovereign act of God. By grace we have been saved. The Pharisees saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. And they didn't drop to their knees and repent. It didn't change their view toward Christ at all. It is the gospel that saves. And Jesus knew the people were desperate. And we see Jesus teaching and preaching and healing. We see he felt compassion on them. And so those last two verses are setting us up for our command to partner with with Christ. So he says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What moved him to say the harvest is plentiful? Well, seeing the immediate need for leadership, for godly men to stand up and to speak the truth of God, to teach and proclaim the gospel. The harvest. Do you know that God wants and is going to harvest people? That's what he wants. He's going to do that. He wants to pluck them from their sin, from the road uh, to hell, and forgiving them and granting them eternal life. He wants to do that. 
But do you know that the surprise for me came from reading Matthew Henry's commentary on this verse? You see, I always looked at the phrase, the harvest is plentiful from a negative perspective, that there's a lot of people standing around uh, waiting to hear the gospel. So we think of this large crowd just kind of pathetic standing there hoping to do something. Well, let's look at the commentary, what Matthew Henry had to say. He says, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You see, people desire good preaching, but there are few good preachers. There was a great deal of work to be done and a great deal of good likely to be done, but there wanted hands to do it. You see, it was an encouragement that the harvest was so plenteous. It was not strange that there were multitudes that needed instruction, but it was what does not often happen, that they who needed it desired it and were forward to receive it. So the phrase is an encouragement. Yes, there's lots of people. But they are waiting for God to answer prayer and to raise up workers. It should be an encouragement that if we labor for the Lord, we will reap a harv- he will reap a harvest in the end. And we partner with God in this endeavor. endeavor. But God wants to use us in this process. The workers are few. This implies that people are needed to help gain the harvest. Last verse here. Verse 38 says, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Therefore, therefore, what? Well, since there are people like sheep without a shepherd, and since there is a big harvest that needs people to help harvest, do this. This is a command. Beseech the Lord. Of the harvest. The word beseech means to pray earnestly, almost to, to beg God. This um, having a deep personal need. You're, you're praying to him because you lack something. You're beseeching him. This is Jesus speaking and commanding us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would do something. We want to ask him to send out workers into his harvest. And the two phrases that we don't want to miss, we don't want to miss that the it's the the Lord of the harvest, and his harvest. We are his workers, but the increase and the, re- and the final results are his. Um, it all belongs to him. We are being obedient to the command to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers. We are also commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So this implies also that God will hear our prayers and he will answer, right? Jesus said, do it, and God will answer. And see, he is responsible for the harvest. We're his partners. God is responsible both for sending people out and for gathering people. Our response to salvation is not my will be done, but yours be done. What do you require of me? And God draws us in by his amazing grace. But I I believe that he sends us out by that same amazing grace. And we see how amazingly kind he is, and he wants others to experience that same uh, grace and forgiveness of sins. John Piper commenting said this about this verse. He said that we are an extension and continuation of the work of Christ to bring the gospel to the world. That mission has never stopped. So just as we draw to a close today, 
You know, Jesus talked about sowing and reaping, the parable of the sower, which he was to scattered seeds. And what does it say at the very end? He said that some uh, reaped a harvest of 30%, 60 and even 100%. Jesus did talk about harvesting, the parable of the wheat and the tares, of the wheat and the weeds, that in the end God is going to gather up the, the weeds and, and separate them from the the wheat, and gather that in the final harvest to himself? Did Jesus ever talk about people being sent out? Well, he certainly did. It's very interesting, isn't it? That after we see our our verses today of Jesus encouraging those around him, saying the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, what do we see in Matthew chapter 10? Immediately, we see Jesus commissioning those with him to go out and preach the gospel. He's, he gives them authority over unclean spirits. He instructs them where to go, where not to go, what to preach. The kingdom of, God, of heaven is at hand. He reminds them that they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be hated, hated and even beaten at times. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Luke chapter 10 is almost the, the parallel of, of this text that we had today and even in that text immediately after the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few we see in luke chapter 10 jesus commissioning and sending them out immediately right after that my questions to you today are just i think are reasonable do you share with christ the urgency to teach and preach do you share with christ that people are desperate that people desperately need to hear the gospel? I mean, just think about it. You're here today because somebody preached the gospel to you and God answered that by regenerating your heart and bringing you into his, to salvation. And now you have a blessed hope ahead of you. All those who are not in Christ have an eternity in hell waiting for them. And we would sit and enjoy the goodness and the grace of God and keep it to ourselves like a, a light hidden under a bushel and not go into the world and share that with somebody else. Aren't we grateful that somebody shared that with us at one point or another? But do you, So do you hear our call to action through prayer and evangelism through what Jesus has instructed us to do? That's what I wanted to share with you this, this morning. Um, I don't. Sh- I don't share that with you because God is, because I'm, because of what I do on a regular basis. I share that with you because, uh, I mean, we watch the news and we don't like the way that the world is turning out sometimes or the way things are changing. But it's the gospel that actually changes a heart and actually will. is when we rely heavily upon what the Lord can do in a heart, we'll forget all the other things that happens and and just heavily rely upon God and allow Him to work. And uh, I just, I pray that um, it would speak to you today. Um, We're going to pray, and then after we pray, you can stay in your seats. I just want to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace, and then we'll be dismissed, all right? Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege of speaking here today. 
I thank you for the example that Christ is, uh, his ministry in this world, in this life where he reached out to those around him but, and uh, sharing the, the gospel, having compassion upon people. Lord, may we share in his desires to, to preach the gospel, to, um, may we share in his desires to, um, to have compassion upon people and to minister to those around us. May we not be afraid to do that. May we be encouraged today uh, through your command to pray to the Lord of the harvest to, to raise up laborers. And Lord, may we be encouraged that all the results belong to you. And um, we just thank you. Um, may we go forward today. May you bless each person as they go throughout their week. May you bless them, Lord, uh, in just drawing near to you and in your word. And may uh, they be comforted, Lord, um, by your grace this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see.